Where everybody? So we'll be uh, back in chapter 23. Uh, Dad talked about that a little bit uh, last time. We'll go over uh, some of that ground again. In his prayer, he alluded to one of the things that we're, we've really been working through ever since we hit the Ten Commandments, and that is this topic of what does it mean for us? Now, I don't know if that's just because our generation or Western thought is kind of egocentric. We, we want to know what does it mean for us. Um, you know, I, I think it's a, at least I think it's a reasonable thing to ask. You know, what are, what are we to do with this? We, we know that, you know, Scripture's here for our, for our benefit. And, you know, we're used to um, taking something from the Bible and, and just assuming there's a direct word to us. Um, uh, certainly uh, a lot of New Testament preaching is, is presented in that fashion. Here it is, so do it. Um, it's a little uncomfortable as we start to put these filters into place and, and, and decide to buffer maybe some of what we're given. I mean, part of it almost seems sacrilegious. You know, what do you mean? The Ten Commandments weren't really directly to us. You know, it just seems, it seems a little odd. Um, so we'll we'll kind of continue to grapple with that. I, I I think it's, I think it's worth grappling with, and uh, we'll uh, we'll move on through. Um, Dad mentioned uh, previously that this section is is called the Book of the Covenant, or referred to as the Book of the Covenant. If you'll turn back to Exodus 20, just for a moment. We see there, of course, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And then after the Ten Commandments, we hear about thunder and lightning and God and so forth. And then we get to the first verse of chapter 21, and it says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So 21.1 starts, these are the rules. Now if you flip past our, our current section um, to chapter 24, look at verse 3, Exodus 24.3, it says, Moses, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So between 21 and 24, um, those are the rules, all right? And then if we go further down to verse 7, we see why they're referred to as the Book of the Covenant. In 24-7 it says, Then he took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So here we have these, these rules, which collectively were called the Book of the Covenant. And, you know, that's what, that's just, it's what, what Moses has been doing this whole time. So uh, this will be somewhat of a continuation of, of all of these, these, these laws, these summer commands and, and um, 
one uh, kind of a legal term I, our legal um, viewpoint I, I had not really known before or thought of before. Um, one of the commentators I read said some of these laws are, uh, I forget the fancy legal term, but they're basically do not do these things, right? Just straightforward commands, two plus two is four, don't kill, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but some are uh, what they call case law, where if such and such a thing happens, then this is the consequence or, or whatever. Um, so uh, you'll, you'll see a mixture of those as we kind of go back and forth. Um, to review a little bit of uh, last time, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 23, uh, we have this concept of, you'll, you'll hear about how to handle yourself uh, in front, basically in court. And it's assumed here, and I, I guess it, it was probably obvious to all of you, but I had not thought of it myself, that all of these commands that, that follow in this particular section it really assumes a pretty mature legal system, right? Uh, so the, is it reasonable to think that all of that had happened in the two plus months or so since they were rescued from Egypt? I think that would be unlikely, right? Um, so this definitely looks ahead to that day when they'll be settled in the land with you know, this sounds familiar to us, right? You've got, you've got witnesses, you've got someone or some ones who are going to be doing some judging and, you know, people calling witnesses to rebuke what's going on. You're going to have um, the, the, the plaintiffs. Uh, you're going to have the, the, the people that are receiving the, uh, the payback for whatever happened. So it's a pretty robust legal system that these sections assume. Um, so, uh, verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Um, this wicked man, uh, as it's been said, uh, doesn't necessarily mean wicked the way we think of it, it but it means uh, the person that's being accused, uh, the, the assumed evildoer that's coming to court. Um, don't... don't um, uh, get with him and um, and give a false witness that would try to have him come free. Uh, it's good to look at this uh, in conjunction with verse uh, let's see there's it's like the opposite. Yeah, verse seven, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. So it's like in verse 1, you don't want to give testimony that makes a guilty man look innocent. Verse 7 basically says, don't give testimony against an innocent man to make him look guilty. It's kind of the mirror image there, but you get the idea. Don't spread a false report. All right, back to verse 2. You shall not fall in 
with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So a couple things there. Um, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. What do, we, what do we call it when you just side with the many because it's the many, the majority? It becomes a mob, right? Um, mobs aren't noted for being thoughtful, deliberative, uh, you know, really weighing out the pros and cons of an argument. Um, that's, that's not what mobs are noted for. Um, and just because it's the many doesn't mean it's right, right? Of course, we do, um, you know, having said that, this whole kind of democracy concept <laughs> kind of assumes that maybe the, the many has a, has a clue. Um, but I guess you don't side with the many just because they're the many. So there's a, I guess that's a topic for another day. But nor shall you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. That seems odd, right? God's always looking out for the poor. But there's, there's a limit there, right? Don't just side with the poor just because they're poor, right? Justice is justice. And, you know, if there's a rich criminal, okay, criminal. If there's a poor criminal, okay, still criminal, right? So you can't, uh, you can't go too far um, with your mercy there necessarily. So here we have these you shall nots. Now, verse 4, we have a, an if. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Apparently, the Hebrew there is pretty awkward, but I guess if this makes sense, if you see the donkey of your enemy that is carrying too much, now I don't know where the owner would be. You would think it would not be unattended but if you happen to see this donkey that's overloaded you should help unload the donkey even if he belongs to your enemy hard for me to find a good application for that one but that's a concept um, I guess maybe this is uh, the Old Testament version of love your enemies uh, I'm not sure if that's too much of a stretch verse 6 you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit Keep far from a false charge, and so forth. We've talked about that. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Um, we've, um, we've probably all heard that especially in the in the east that hospitality is um, kind of a core value you're expected to be hospitable to those that that you are around and um, that that need your help um, so that certainly makes sense 
Shifting gears, we're going to hear some <coughs> comments about some festivals, Sabbaths, and so forth. Verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat, and you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So, they've been traveling around. It's been a couple months, probably three, four, who knows how many months they've been up on the mountain here. And they're hearing kind of advanced teaching, right? They heard about this advanced legal system, and now we've got advanced teaching about um, uh, your... um, uh, your fields and and your uh, vineyards and your orchards. Um, when I first read this, I thought to myself, so they're going to, I just pictured going to the land and kind of homesteaders, right? Here's all this land and I'm going to plant some crops. I'm going to plant some olive trees. I'm going to plant some vineyards. And I thought to myself, well, how long does it take for an olive tree to because you picture olive trees being like ages and ages. So I looked it up. How many years does it take for an olive tree to start producing? Ten. Ten years? Do I hear high or lower? Three. Three years? Seven. Huh? Seven. Seven years? So you guys are, are closer. I, th- I pictured like a long time. Apparently, depending on the variety, three years. Um, you can start to, to get and um, but peak production 65 to 80 years that's really when they get their groove on so uh, um, I, yeah I guess uh, so I can start to relate to some of that maybe um, but uh, so anyway I got to I got to thinking this whole concept so um, but then I realized these fields and orchards and vineyards, they probably didn't start from scratch, right? They're going to be acquiring these, shall we say. They're going to be taking these over, right? Uh, they're going to be, um, uh, these are going to be probably in most cases the spoils of war, right? So somebody else has planted those olive trees and, um, you know, God's going to say, uh, here they are, you can, you can now have these for yourself. So uh, I thought that was, uh, I, I just not pictured that. Uh, the other thing, um, this concept of um, uh, the seventh year and letting it rest, we saw that concept with the theological overtones, right? Um, uh, the Sabbath being holy, you know, the day of rest, because that was when um, God rested, and, and there's some of that in here too, but but look, one of the other reasons is why? That the poor of your people may eat. This was the way you provided. So this also made me think about something I had not pictured before. I had kind of pictured, I don't know why, but I pictured people leaving Egypt, kind of a homogeneous group of people, right? All slaves. But by the time we get to this, you've got some people that are presumably rich and the landowners, and you've got other people that are already poor. 
anybody make anything of that? Is it just like we're destined to kind of filter out? Is that just like human nature? Some people are going to be harder workers and some people are just going to be poor. I, I just, I don't know. I never really thought about, you know, here we are, potentially as early as, you know, within the first decade or two of when God has intended the, the land to be settled and everything's already gravitated. I've, I've never pictured that the Israelis were all poor at the bottom of the food chain slaves. I've always pictured them to be, some of them were actually the masters of the slaves in their houses. Therefore, they were middle class slaves, if you will. So some of them left there. <coughs> a form of wealth, and some of them left there as completely, totally beaten down slaves. But remember, too, they stripped Egypt of its wealth on the way out. Yeah. They had a lot when they left. They left as slaves, but they were not dirt poor right. slaves. Yeah, I, I, I like that, Don. Uh, I, I don't know. I just... Um, just to just to kind of picture how quickly things gravitated, but to your point, maybe it wasn't so quick. Maybe this was, you know, they'd had 400 years to sort themselves out to people that were well-to-do and people that weren't. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. Isn't that kind of true, though, of society? There are people who assume leadership roles and those sit back and let somebody else tell them what to do. Yeah, it is. There's always people living above their means too. So if there are people who are going into debt and selling themselves as slaves, to, I mean, there's nothing that says that did not happen. Yeah. Yeah, we saw some of that in some of these earlier passages. I just think it's interesting just to picture, you know, what was this whole economy like? But in any event, you see this um, concept of um, kind of the, the, the social safety net there, so to speak. It made me wonder, you know, how, um, you know, sometimes when they have like the, the uh, I forget, is it the second harvest truck? Or I don't know, sometimes when they, they have, you know, food that's available. And so back in the day, you know, you'd say, well, you know, you know, uh, Abraham's fields are up for Sabbath this year, so uh, so that's where we're lining up uh, for the next twelve months. And and um, you know we got we got to got to leave uh, you know Jacob's alone because he's he's going to get back in there and start working that again. And you, I guess you just kind of knew whose was coming up. Ideally, they should be staggered, right? I mean, you should some and. Uh, you know, you got to think the olive trees, they're not going to care whether it's the sixth or seventh year. I would assume those are kind of uh, less labor-intensive to keep going. I'm sure there's stuff to do. But anyway, I just just picturing that whole thing, I was kind of interested. Okay, the concept of Jubilee work with staggered Sabbath. I, I don't know. I don't know. But we're going to see later that 
you know, they didn't acquire all this stuff all at one point. It was an unfolding thing. So if you got your field and, you know, AD 15, I mean, BC 1500 or whatever, and the next person didn't get their land until a couple years later, I, I would think it would kind of, on an individual basis, kind of worked out to be staggered. I, I don't know. You got a, you got a solution for that? Right. Yeah, um, it does. I, and it made, as I was thinking about that, I saw in this verse 11 where it says, The seventh year shall let it rest and lie fallow, and who gets to eat? That the poor of your people. Right. And how do you fit that in with the sojourner thing? I guess if they're just passing through. But if you know, I don't know. I don't know. Do you have like, uh, you know, Sabbath field cops saying, "Well, you're not my people." You know, I I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, just these little snapshots that we get, and you just start to imagine how it really was. I don't know. You know, this is chasing a huge rabbit, but I hope there's this feature in heaven where you can go back and see what it was really like back when I think we're going to realize it's probably no matter how we can imagine it, it's going to be different than what we imagine right I, I just would be fascinated I'd love to like have this view and like just see creation happen right or see I, you name it uh, uh, I would like that God. I don't know if that's on the drawing board or not, but anyway, uh, back to <laughs> back to uh, back to scripture. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. We're in verse twelve. Six days you shall do your work. Seventh day you shall rest. Your donkey and your don. Uh, sorry, your ox and your donkey may have rest. The son of your servant woman, the alien, may be refreshed. Verse thirteen. Pay attention to all that I've said. You make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard from your lips. All right. So, lots of uh, lots of the law stuff there. All right. We're wrapping up. Verse fourteen. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. All right. Three times. So, what are the three times? Verse fifteen. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, this was, we saw previously to kind of commemorate, um, as kind of connected with the Passover, right? Um, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we've looked at this previously. The second, verse 16, you shall keep the Feast of Harvest, or the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. Um, some places, um, 
Feast of Harvest. I'm going to reference some commentary material here. Also called the Feast of Weeks. was held seven weeks after the first festival. Um, feast entails giving to God the first fruits of one's produce with the full harvest coming later, which we'll see. Um, Paul talks about first fruits, right? What's the context where Paul talks about first fruits? It's the resurrection, right? Christ as a resurrection of the first fruits, uh, so that you know if 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 Christ has been raised, then then we can be raised, the first fruits. So this is um, the second festival is the the feast of the harvest. Um, those those early those early um, fruits uh, to, to be devoted to God. And then the feast, also in verse 16, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So this ingathering, um, later in Scripture, talked about the feast of booths. This is where everything was being gathered in. Um, this Feast of Booths, um, uh, some people say it's because um, they would build shelters so that everybody could stay in the fields and wouldn't just come back home every night. Um, some people say it was to symbolize um, the temporary lodgings that the Israelites had as they were doing their wandering. But uh, those are the, the three times, and then it goes on to say, in verse 17, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. Verse 18, shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. We know that this leavening was a sign of contamination. Let the fat of my feast remain until morning. Uh, that was the same prohibition that was part of the Passover, so that's not really new. Um, verse 19, the best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Uh, amplifying before. And then this odd one, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So uh, the best reference I, I uh, came up with, with why you shouldn't do this was apparently they, archaeologists have found uh, a tablet showing that the Canaanites did this and it was part of a uh, part of a pagan ritual where you boiled the young goat in its mother's milk and then you would sprinkle that around for I don't know fertility or for good crops or something and so the the prohibition here appears to be um, for the purpose of, of staying away from that um, Canaanite um, tradition. Um, now, I started to think about the practical natures of this. I don't think I've had goat but once. Um, I don't remember anything about it. Um, but boiling a goat in milk just doesn't sound great. But then, as I thought about that, then quickly it popped in my head, you know, if you throw meat in a crock pot, what do you do to it? It's like the cream of mushroom soup, and that does everything, right? <laughs> so that's like mostly milk. So I thought to myself, well, I don't know. It, it might actually be okay. So, um, 
I don't know. Play with that. I'm not sure about the whole goat thing. Pausing there because verse 20 is going to pick up something different. Um, you know, we've kind of talked through these little laws. Um, and kind of on purpose, we've kind of dabbled with them, right? This thing about like not bearing false witness and everything, that sounds like something that we would endorse, right? We can kind of get behind that one. This thing about not boiling a young goat in the mother's milk, I'm kind of neutral on that one now. <laughs> you know? So that's kind of the position that we're in with all these, right? There's some that we can really get behind. Like we saw some last time, this about, you know, uh, uh, remarry, you know, uh, uh, borrowing things and all that it was like, yeah, you know, I want to bring my stuff back. But then there's this whole other thing about, you know, if, you know, if your virgin daughter, you know, gets seduced and then there's this payment and that all kind of sounds icky. I'm not sure I really want to go there. That's kind of where we are with this whole thing about how does this apply to us, for us. You've heard Dad and I use this terminology. Um, I um, I'll give credit to the author of this NIV com commentary because he does a really good job of wrestling with this, and he says he's talking about this whole concept. He says to put the problem another way. It's the data of the New Testament itself that complicates the matter. The New Testament is not clear on how the law is to be applied. Here's what are our options. You can, you can say um, that uh, there are specific things that are binding you can say that there's certain scripture, certain uh, principles that would be binding. Um, or you can say it's just not for us at all. Uh, or it's bad or whatever. And he gives some examples, which I thought were interesting. So let me pull this up here. All right, Romans 10. So our first option, when we say, what does this all mean to us? Is say, basically, um, the law really doesn't have any place for it doesn't have anything to do with me right that was a law it's not for me Romans 10:4 Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes 
Law is done. It's all about Jesus. Okay? Other times in Scripture, it seems that, and it's, it's helpful to kind of see uh, Paul in all of this, because it's the same, same person, so you don't have to turn here, but we've already mentioned Ephesians 6, verse 1, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, verse 2, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So it seems here that Paul is actually just pulling one straight for and says, this is binding. This is a commandment. Boom. So, position one, this doesn't apply to me. Position two, it does apply to me, at least some of them. <coughs> Position three is maybe we can just get a principle. All right, so this one's fun. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians nine, verse eight. Now the context here is Paul is basically saying, uh, kind of putting forth his credentials and what he deserves and what he's allowed and what he's said no to and a lot of these things. Verse eight. It says, "Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same?" For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? Blah, blah, blah. He's pulling out a statement from the law of Moses, basically saying, because God said that, this is why you need to pay your preachers. Right? So he's... Paul's perfectly fine with going back to law, pulling forth a principle from that and applying it to the current situation. So that's our third option. We can pull some principles forward. It's messy, right? Um, because we, want, we feel compelled to do something with it. But It's messy. And lots of other people, way smarter than me, have grappled with it, probably more, more successfully. But I thought that those examples were pretty good. You can say it doesn't apply to me. You can say um, that it does apply to me. Or you can say the laws don't really necessarily apply, but the principles that underlie them may be applied. Um, the problem with some of those approaches is you're in the position of picking and choosing which ones you decide to apply or not to apply. Now, our fallback for the T 
Ten Commandments was which ones are repeated in the New Testament. And I think that is probably going to be the default position. That if you, if you go too far down the road of things that aren't supported in the New Testament, a.k.a. the New Covenant, right, um, then you probably ought to have very loose um, authority. You know, we don't, we're, not, we're not apostles, right? We don't have, you know, divine, you know, Pauline ability to go back and decide which ones to bring forward. Um, so, uh, so just, you know, if you're ever in the position of a debate and, and if your debate really hinges on some obscure verse in Leviticus to make your point, and you don't have a lot of New Testament support, you just got to be cautious with that authority. We're over time. Don't you think but, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, he said he's the fulfillment of the law. Um, but then he also says none of it's going away, so it's hard to know what to do with that part of it, too. So um, I think the big idea, uh, if, if there is one, is what I can fully get behind is all of these laws are a snapshot into knowing who God is slash was, especially at that time for those people facing what they were going to be facing, right? So if we have a God who was taking care of the people then for what they were going to be facing, we still have a God who can take care of his people now for what we're going to be facing. Now maybe that's pulling forward a principle, I don't know. We better quit. Father, please uh, work with us, um, clear up all the cloudiness I'm sure I created today. Um, continue to um, expose us to your word, and we'll trust the Holy Spirit to apply it as he sees fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.